Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who was drafted by the Cincinnati Reds out of Stephen F. Austin High School in the second round of the 1970 Major League Baseball Draft. He would play in 1,408 games over 14 seasons and in parts of six seasons with the New York Mets. He had his best season as a Met in the strike-shortened season of 1981, where he batted 350 with a 929 OPS and was named an All-Star for the only time in his career. The following season, he made history by becoming the only player to get hits in two different teams in two different cities on the same day. He played for the Mets in the afternoon in Chicago, was traded to Montreal after the game, played for the Expos that night in Philadelphia. He was one of my favorite interviews for Howie Carpenter and my You Never Forget Your First, the collection of New York Mets' first book. It is a pleasure to welcome Joel Youngblood to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Joel. How you doing? I'm doing quite well, Mark. How you doing? Doing great. Anytime we get to talk baseball and the baseball season's here, it's always good. So, you know, it's interesting because some of the conversations we had in the book um, like I said, one of my favorite subjects in the book was you. You grew up in Houston, uh, pretty much in walking distance from Buffalo Stadium, which was the home of the Houston Buffaloes. What impact did that have, as well as then Houston getting a major league franchise when you were 11 years old? Um, what impact did that have on your love of baseball? Well, I think, Mark, uh, having that ballpark so close, it was easy for my family to take me to a game and just let me run around. And I think that's when I developed an interest in playing this game when I was watching uh, the AAA players play at uh, Buff Stadium. And uh, I used to be able to watch the fireworks from my yard so on Fourth of July. So it was it was quite of a uh, quite of a excitement for a young kid, you know six, seven, eight years old, running around the stadium trying to find the ball. <laughs> was there a favorite uh, Buffalo that you, you know, player that you had back then? Oh, it's too far back. I can't remember. <laughs> Actually, my AAA manager, Vern Rapp, said he played there a long time. Uh, so I wouldn't doubt if I watched him play. Uh, that's crazy. So it's also interesting how small a world baseball actually is. Former New York Yankee Chuck Knobloch's dad and a scout named Tony Ribello had a huge impact on your baseball future. Can you tell the audience a little bit about what they meant to your baseball career? Well, in Houston, Texas, uh, the district I lived in, Bel Air High School was in our district, and Chuck Knobloch's dad uh, was the head coach for that team. And the team I played for, uh, Stephen F. Austin uh, High School, they didn't have an American Legion team. And so he had always asked me to come play, come catch for his team. And uh, and then one day he called me up and he said, hey, Joel, uh, we're going to have a tryout camp on Saturday at Nagel Field. There's going to be three other players. Can you make it? And I said, sure, I can make it. But I just got finished playing uh, football. I hadn't been playing. But he said, just do the best you can. And uh, so... You know, I went there and uh, uh, tried out with with the other three guys that I knew, and uh, and uh, Tony Ribello told me he said we're going to draft you, but I didn't believe him because I went to a Montreal Expo tryout when I was a junior in high school, and 
I just, you know, thought, nah, nothing's going to happen, you know, and, uh, but they did. And that led to the career I had. <laughs> so we, we mentioned in the open that you're chosen by the Reds in the second round of the 1970 January uh, amateur draft. You had one of those full circle moments the day you signed your first contract. When you were in high school, um, one of the autographed photos you had hanging in your room was out of Astro pitcher Don Wilson. Can you, you fill us in a little bit about how you uh, came about running into Don the day you signed your Reds contract? Well, it, it, it's a two-part story. Actually, before I signed my contract, I was in Montgomery Wards, which is like a, a, a normal store that sells like Sears or something like that. And uh, I was looking at, at some, uh, I think I was looking at baseball bats or something, you know, and this guy across the room waved at me and said, hey, you play baseball? And I said, yeah. And he says, you want an autograph? I said, sure. I walked over and talked to him and it was Don Wilson and he signed this picture for me and he was with the Astros and and so I put it in my room because I thought it was a big deal. And uh, then when I signed in January, I, I, I read in the paper that he was signing autographs at the Fingers Furniture Store, which used to be the Buff Stadium. And so I went over there and walked up in front of the line and, 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 and said, hey, Don. And he looked at me, he said, I remember you. And I said, yeah, I just wanted to come by and let you know I signed a major league contract with the Reds. And we both smiled and laughed, and and so it was a good it was a good moment in in time to uh, to see how uh, his his influence influenced me and helped me become a major league player. That's such an awesome story. You make your way up the Reds minor league system, but there's a guy named Pete Rose playing your position at the time with the Reds. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, you're told you're going to be called up in 1975. That never happens, but you make the team out of spring training the next year. Um, it wasn't Sparky Anderson, though, that told you you were being called up and, and he made the team in spring training. How did you find out that you made the team? Well, uh, uh, getting back to your first story, when I first signed, I signed as a catcher. They, and they came and told me the first day, they said, we have Johnny Bench and Bill Plummer. You're, you're, you're going to go to another position. But in the Reds back in the 70s, they had such a strong lineup. You know, they had – uh, Joe Morgan and they had Tony Perez, Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, you know, Concepcion, Geronimo, George Foster, Tim Griffey, you know, and, and Foster and Griffey played with me in AAA. Uh, so it was just very difficult in the minor leagues with the Reds to get to the big leagues because they had such great uh, uh, talent. So I'm, I'm in spring training walking in Al Lopez Field and Joe Bowen, who was our super scout, was walking next to him and he said, Hey, Joel, he says, they're not going to tell you you made the team, but I'm going to let you know you made the team, you know, and I was quite thrilled uh, at that point because, you know, it was like three more days before spring training broke and I was having a really good spring to make the team, but I had no choice. Uh, It was either do the, you know, lead the team in hitting. Otherwise (laughs) I was probably going to be a free agent and I would, I would sign with somebody else because I had confidence in myself that if the Reds didn't take me, I would end up somewhere in the major leagues. It's interesting, too, because, you know, you look back and obviously Sparky Anderson had such tremendous success as a major league manager. But when you speak to the guys that were rookies coming up, um, they don't really have the fondest memories of Sparky. What was Sparky like for you as a rookie? Well, you know, it, it's 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 really easy to understand. Sparky was around baseball a long time. 
he really, really trusted the people that had experience. As rookies, there was no experience, and so it was very difficult for him to uh, share his, his his thoughts with you or talk to you, and because he had so many good players, he, you know, like Rose, Bench, Morgan, all those guys that he that he talked to. He he did he didn't really talk to me that much, you know, and he didn't talk to a lot of the rookies. But as I got older, he treated me quite well. And uh, Sparky was a really good manager, a good man. It's just, I, I would probably be the same way. I, you know, you can't trust a kid until they prove themselves. And, and therefore, you can't get too close to them. So you get your first major league hit as a pinch hitter against Hall of Famer Phil Negro. Your first start comes <laughs> against another Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Uh, your first start was pretty impressive. Can you, you tell uh, some of our younger listeners that might not know about that day how that first start went? Well, uh, you know, I, I did it, uh, my first at bat, I got a base hit against Phil, and I think it was April 16th, April something, it, it, later in April, we were in Philadelphia, and it was quite cold, and I believe Sparky said, this is a good opportunity to give Griffey a day off, it's cold, a left-hander's pitching, I can get Youngblood in the lineup for one day, you know, and and so they came and told me before the game and, and uh, said, hey, you're going to be playing tonight, and I said, okay, and my first four bats, I had base hits. And actually, my fifth at bat should have been a base hit, but Mike Smith dove and caught a one-hopper to his left and jumped up and threw me out at first base. So my first five at bats in the major leagues, I had base hits. And because I went four for five that day, Sparky played me the next day against Bill Underwood, who was another left-hander. And I went one for three with a triple. So I had uh, six, six for nine at that point, and I only got a, only got eleven hits the whole year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you're not on the active <laughs> roster when the Reds play the Yankees in the World Series that year, but you're in uniform with the team. How did being there around all the great players on the Big Red Machine impact your growth as a player? And what was your biggest takeaway from you know being around that whole World Series experience? Well, Mark, number one is, you know, back in the old days, they didn't bring up a lot of players. And uh, so we were all on the active roster, that whole team. Uh, they might have brought up a catcher and maybe a pitcher, but they didn't bring up anybody in the old days uh, because they didn't want to share the, uh, split the shares too many ways because there wasn't a lot of money back then. Uh, but, you know, it's something about, you know, remembering the Reds, you know, I think I was more fearful as a young kid beating the Phillies than I was the Yankees because the Phillies gave us a lot of problems in the year. They were the only team that kind of really was even with us uh, as, as a record. And, uh, but we never were behind a game and we didn't lose a game. So everybody that was a utility player didn't get to play except maybe Doug Flynn. Uh, so it was unfortunate, you know, we didn't get in the, in, in the world series, but it was also great knowing that we were winning every game. So the trade-off was it was it was well deserved and, and easier for me to handle when we were winning and not playing instead of me going in because they had to make an adjustment. So that's that's the way it worked out. Everybody was extremely happy. And getting back to the Reds, they were all great. We had uh, the camaraderie with the team. You know, when we left spring training, we knew we were going to win. We knew we were going to win the World Series. And uh, it, it was it was pretty awesome year. It was really a, pretty amazing. You know, Sparky came in in spring training and said, "Look, guys, we're going to lose about 50 games." He said, "Just don't lose them all in a row." 
<laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's also interesting because uh, having the ability to, to speak to guys like you and, and Dougie Flynn, whereas like you, you mentioned, Sparky didn't like, you know, hadn't the young players had not gained, you know, Sparky had not gained trust yet in those young players. But, you know, from what Doug Flynn tells me, you know, Joe Morgan taught him something very, very valuable. Like Doug once went into the trainer's room and then Joe Morgan said, don't ever let, you know, anyone see you in the trainer's room. I know that Pete Rose, you know, took Doug under his wing. What were some of the, the Reds that were, you know, influential on you and some of the lessons you learned from some the teammates back then? Well, I, I, honestly, I'd have to say the lessons I learned from that team was watching them day in and day out, uh, how they went about their work, how they played the game. Uh, I think that was the most impressive uh, education I could have received at that age in, in my career. Uh, you know, I mean, it was it was amazing on the bus going to a, to a, to the stadium and Pete was telling everybody how many hits he was going to get the next three days and how many he was going to get off of each pitcher. It was, it was impressive. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's just, uh, the, you know, we were always happy because we were always winning. I mean, it, it was, I, I just can't explain to you what, what a, a enjoyable year it was. I wish I would have played more, but considering what I watched and who I was playing behind, I understand totally. Uh, in March of 77, you traded to the St. Louis Cardinals, but three months later, you go to the New York Mets. Uh, you traded from the Cardinals to the Mets um, for infielder Mike Phillips. What's your first reaction to being traded to the Mets? How did you find out about it? And, you know, going from the Reds now to the Mets, what was, uh, you know, and the Cardinals in between? What, what was your reaction? Well, number one, I didn't get a lot of playing time in Cincinnati, and I got traded to the St. Louis Cardinals because my AAA manager, Vern Rapp, for three years knew what I could do. He traded me, uh, traded for me, and I was 20 for 40 with four home runs in spring training. I got 27 at bats in three months. Well, they had Bake McBride, they had Lou Brock, they had Jerry Muntley, Tony Scott, and myself. So I didn't, it, it wasn't my time to get an opportunity. And so he told me when we were in June, in June he said, Joel, we're going to trade you. Uh, because you're not going to get a chance to play here. And I said, thank you. And, and consequently, I got traded the Mets. And, you know, I'm very grateful that Tory had the, the faith in me to, to, to have me come to the Mets. And it was great. Uh, you know, it's a new team. New York, I wasn't really that confident or happy about the New York City because I got robbed the year before in New York. Uh, and so that, that wasn't sure. But honestly... Mark, I, I, I found my place to live, and I, I stayed there for 15 years. I loved every minute of it, every bit of the city, the New York fans, you know, even even the damn planes flying over my head. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so, so interesting that you mentioned, you know, that Joe Torre had the confidence in you. And, you know, you go back and you look and you remember history, and if I remember this correctly – you know, at the time, Joe Torre is a, a player manager, but he actually retired as a player to open up a spot on the active roster for you. Um, Joe was not really regarded as a, a tremendous manager when he was here with the Mets. Uh, his legacy would be built with the New York Yankees. What do you recall about Joe, you know, as a manager at that time for you? Well, I've always been very vocal and verbal about 
the way I feel about Joe Torrey and how he treated me and other players. I think he was the best manager ever played for. And I played for Sparky, Frank Robinson, uh, Roger Craig. I played for a lot of people that were really good managers, but Joe was a tremendous person, a tremendous communicator. Uh, he never got too excited, never got too high, never got too low. He was always consistent. He was just a gem as, as a manager. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I, 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 to this day, and uh, he is my favorite, favorite coach, manager, etc. cetera. Uh, he's the best. You know, Met fans, we, we have tremendously long memories, whether, you know, uh, it be Lenny Randall at bat, you know, when, when the lights go out, uh, the blackout. You had a couple of really memorable moments that still stand out all these years later. One was, you know, as exciting as a, a walk-off win, you know, at home is, there's also something pretty exciting about a, a walk-off defensive moment. And, and this one, you know, Met fans remember, I'm sure John Stearns remembers it very well. Um, you guys are at the Pirates, June 30th, 1978. The Pirates, um, you know, you guys lead the Pirates 6-3 going into the bottom of the ninth. Dave Parker drives in two with a one-out triple, making a 6-5 uh, game. The tying run on third base with one out. And, and you're in right field when Bill Robinson comes up. Take us through what happens next. Well, he had a base hit to right field, and uh, and it was kind of like a one-hopper. He hit it very hard. He was a great hitter, and uh, and they tagged up. Uh, but thinking about my my skill set, the things that I enjoyed to do the most in, defensively was throw people out and climb the fence and catch a home run. Uh, that was the two things I lived for. And I really wanted to lead the league in, in assists. I came in second twice, unfortunately, but uh, uh, I had a very accurate and strong arm. And, and, and thank goodness I would gave John Stearns a good uh, throw so he could prepare himself because mm-hmm. Dave Parker was going to lay him out. Uh, yeah, Met fans remember that one very, very well. And it's funny because you and Bill Robinson have another moment uh, this time it's at Shea, May 25th, 1979, um, sixth inning on the teams have been playing in this, and you don't really get this a lot at Shea, this thickening mist and fog and the game goes into extra innings in the 11th inning. Um, and you fly a ball out to right field to, to Bill Robinson. Do you remember what happened at that point? I just think I just kept running. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a lot of interesting nights at Shea uh, <laughs> with the fog and, you know, with, with the lights going out and everything. But, you know, I, I was surprised they didn't call the game before that because you couldn't see the ball. Uh, and so a pop-up turns into a, a triple, I think. Was it a triple? Yeah, it was a triple. And then unfortunately at that point, because Bill Robinson never saw the ball, the umpires suspend play. <laughs> And the game never resumes, and it's one of uh, only eight ties in Met history, a 3-3 tie against the Pirates. <laughs> uh, and you, you stranded there at third base. So uh, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, you were a, a bright spot for the Mets in that time. You emerged as a star on that team. You consistently finished with – and those teams consistently finished last or close to it throughout your time, unfortunately, here. But you're the sole representative on the National League team for the 1981 Major League Baseball All-Star game. You pinch it for Fernando Valenzuela. 
what what's that feeling like? You know, you put in so much time and, and, and you, know, you went from the Reds to the Cardinals, now the Mets, and now you're sitting in a room with all the all-stars, the, the biggest names in the sport, and you're one of them. Tell me what that felt like. Well, Mark, it's, it's number one is it's a, it's an honor to be elected on the all-star team. And, uh, you know, having that opportunity to represent the Mets and the all-star team was pretty tremendous. And, and to this day to say I made one all-star team is also pretty tremendous, you know, of, of achievement any player can make. Uh, but it, it was great to sit in the room with everybody because I knew everybody anyway, uh, you know, but just, you know, that I, I had some qualifications to put me in the same room as some of these guys. You know, I, I really believe I could have been a better player, but I just didn't. I needed to understand a little bit more what I needed to control and what I didn't need to control. But uh, baseball is a very mental game. And, and I believe coaching in the major leagues is is more important teaching the players how to practice than trying to teach them how to uh, play because if you learn how to practice correctly you'll you'll learn how to play correctly and, and I believe it's all education at this point everybody that signs a contract has special talent or abilities they're just not sure how to control them day in and day out and when you have your downfalls what what do you have to go to you know instead of worrying about I think that's why I don't have any hair I was worried when I'm gonna get my next base hit I'd rub my head all the time you know but but uh, uh, I just believe that uh, uh, you know, it, it's education at that point. So it's, is is uh, you know, trying to eliminate the gap, the learning gap that it requires to learn how to be consistent in the major leagues with the competition you're against. And one of the things we love about baseball is also the, the little quirks or, or, you know, records. Obviously, you know, DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak, we don't know if that's ever going to be broken. Cal Ripken's consecutive game streak but I have a feeling that your you know what you did on August 4th 1982 is probably never going to be done again you're the only player in history to get hits for two different teams in two different cities on the same day um, two different countries on top of it Um, walk us through that day and just you know what you remember about it well you know I I in 81, I made the all-star team and they got a new manager in 82. I was told I wasn't going to play. And it was quite interesting, uh, you know, for the manager to tell me after making the all-star team that you're not going to play. But so I had a feeling that I was going to be a free agent the end of the year and there was a good chance they could trade me. And, uh, so I'm playing in Chicago, playing center field. I'm batting third, I think. And, uh, you know, in my first at bat, I, I, I get a base hit and knock a couple of runs in and, you know, play a couple more innings. And, you know, in the third or fourth inning, you know, I was, I was, Bamberger called me over and said, hey, man, you've just been traded to the uh, Montreal Expos. They're in Philadelphia. They, they asked me to ask you if you could try to get there because they're short players. I said, I'll do everything I can. So if the game starts at one o'clock in Chicago and it's three innings, you're thinking it's either two thirty, three o'clock. I'm still in my uniform. I got to go tell everybody goodbye. Go, go take a shower, pay my incidentals, pack my bags, get in the cab, find a cab, get in the cab, go to the hotel, pack my bags, pay my incidentals, find another cab and go back to uh, O'Hare. But on the way to O'Hare, 
I realized I left my glove on the facing at Wrigley Field. So I told him, I said, no, no, I'm not leaving my glove. Go back. So he drove up. I ran in, ran, ran out, ran through the dugout, grabbed my glove, my glove, waved at everybody. And I took off. And uh, I had a 6.05 flight, which is 7.05 Philly time. It's a two-hour flight. So I landed at 9.05. I wasn't sure. I think I got to the airport at 6, 6.05. I mean, uh, 5.45, 5.40. I didn't, I made the flight, but I didn't think my baggage was going to make the flight. So I'm waiting at the carousel and, and nothing's coming out. Nothing's coming out. I said, Oh, and then I saw my bags come out and I, and I grabbed them and I went outside, took another cab. So let's see, one, two, three cabs, four cabs that day. And, and went to veteran stadium with my baseball bag, with my suitcase. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting the elevator, go downstairs, go in the clubhouse. They had my uniform. I put it on. And I went out because Pete Rose was on the Phillies. And so I went and sat at the end of the dugout like he normally sits on the, on the, on the AstroTurf leaning on the stairs. And I waved at him and he waved back at me. And, uh, and then uh, Flanning said, young blood, get up, you're hitting. I said, okay. <laughs> and, and uh, I believe number one, a player has to be on the road to get this opportunity. Because if you're at home, you're going to go home and repack. Number two is if you're flying to the east, it's going to be more difficult. If you're flying to the west, it's going to be easy. North, south, or west, it's going to be a lot easier than east. And number three is getting the opportunity to face two Hall of Famers on the same day. That's very mm-hmm. difficult to do. Yes. So it turned out quite well for me. So, I, I, Mark, I'll be remembered for something. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think anyone's ever doing that again. So, you know, you mentioned the, the two Hall of Famers in that day. And I went back and looked. Over 1,400 at-bats in the majors. You had some really good numbers against lots of Hall of Famers. You're, you're 10 for 15 against Jim Cott. A lot of that built on that first game you ever played against him. Uh, 5 for 9 against Rolly Fingers. 7 for 13, Gaylord Perry. 11 for 29 against Bly Levin. 8 for 26 against Suter. 5 for 16 against Tom Seaver. Why do you think you had so much success against those guys? Uh, honestly, maybe I, I, I realize I need to concentrate more, but I think I concentrate the same. I just think most of those guys fit my type of hitting the way they threw. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of pitchers that, I mean, uh, uh, gosh, let me, Bill, uh, no, who, Tommy John, he, he used to send me a, a, a limousine to come to the ballpark because there was no way I was going to get a hit off of him. <laughs> but there was pitchers that I, I couldn't hit. They told me what was coming. And there were some pitchers that I couldn't believe they didn't play me against. So it, it's really kind of, I think every hitter has, you know, the pitchers he just loves and some pitchers he doesn't do very well against. I know uh, Pete Rose didn't like uh, Randy Johnson. He didn't know what side to hit off of, you know. And, uh, uh, so, you know, Randy Jones, I mean, and, uh, uh, so, you know, it, it, it's, everybody has their, it's just the great hitters have more great statistics and rents more pitchers. And, you know, uh, so that, that's kind of what it boils down to, you know, I didn't have enough of those pitchers that I felt that I did extremely well against that. I knew I was going to be on top at the end of the day. Yeah, it's funny. You, you mentioned the ones that you struggle against. You you actually were a, a combined 
one for 23 against Ron Darling and Sid Fernandez, which is somewhat surprising. Um, you know, so that, you know, unfortunately that was back here in New York. You played uh, at least one inning at every single position except pitcher in the major leagues. Was there a moment um, at any point in your career where you were close to maybe going into pitch? And would that have been something now looking back, you would have liked the opportunity to have done? Oh, absolutely. Roger Craig had me warming up against the New York Mets in San Francisco one game. Uh, we were down about seven runs. Lefferts was pitching. He said, he said, blood, go down and get loose. You're going to finish the game up. I said, okay. And so I went down and, and we came back and got like four or five runs. And when I came in, he says, I can't do it. And I said, come on, Roger. And he said, I can't do it. And they had to get Lefferts out of the shower to go back out. Uh, oh. But Joe Torrey used to let Joe Torrey used to let me uh, close out some uh, exhibition games. So, uh, you know, I wish I would have had a chance to pitch to one hitter in, uh, in uh, uh, the major leagues, and I could say I played every position. That would have been awesome. Uh, you managed in the Orioles system in 1992. Um, you mentioned some of the, the managers and, and, and you know, the regard that you uh, hold Joe Torrey in. Some of the other managers you played for, Russ Nixon, Vern Rapp in both the majors and minors, Sparky Anderson, Joe, uh, Jim Fanning, Frank Robinson, Danny Ozark, Jim Davenport, Roger Craig, Pete Rose, and Tommy Holmes, among others. When you were managing that year for the Orioles, which was the manager's voice you heard in your head the most? The old school. <laughs> I was honestly, I wish I had the chance to 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 manage again. I, it, it's a little tough for me because I'm a very hyper, high intensity person, and I manage like managers managed me. And uh, you know, it was more the hard school, and I think it was you know, you know, trying to you know get in their face and get going, and you know, try to create that. Uh, that wanna wanna play hard attitude, uh, but you know I enjoyed the players. It just managing wasn't. A, uh, I don't believe it was. It fit my personality. I'm too. I, I'm better at being an outfield coach, a hitting coach, something like that. You know, a first base coach, third base coach. I thought was a little difficult for me too because I analyzed too many things too quickly. And I, I and I would coach the way I played. You can't do that. Uh, you know, I played very hard. Uh, I was very aggressive. And I, you know, everybody doesn't play the same way as each other. And so, a third base coach, I think, needs to be a little bit more calm, and uh, and make decisions a little bit slower. You know, and I had a hard time because I, I would just process information over and over and over and over and change my mind. So the, the current Met ownership has embraced the, the Mets history. They're bringing back the old timers game uh, here at City Field this year. Uh, number one, are you go? Have you been invited to participate in this year's old timers game? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, unfortunately, with the pandemic and the COVID issues, I was also uh, contacted last year about the uh, writer's uh, award, uh, but I wasn't vaccinated, so I couldn't go. And there was consideration of me being one of the uh, representatives. Uh, and I've been contacted, to, you know, would I do the, the old timers? I said, yes. And they asked me, I said, have you been vaccinated? I said, no, that's my choice. I've had COVID. I think I'm, I'm immune. You know, I, I, I think it's over with. So it's unfortunate that things like that is, is preventing people from 
enjoying their life and living the life, you know, the freedom that they should have. So it's a difficult time. If they call me at the last moment, I'll be there. If they don't, so be it. I, I wish them all the well, and I hope that the fans enjoy everybody they see. And when you were a player uh, on various different franchises, I, I don't remember um, if you were here when the Mets had old timers games. Do you remember any, you know, when you were a player seeing old timers games and, and what you remembered about being some of around the greats at that time? Yes, I do remember some old timers game. And I think mostly it's just being able to see them in person. Uh, you you kind of know who they were with what, what what position they played, you know, what kind of statistics they had. And, uh, but being able to see them in person and see how they've aged and see how, you know, their, their personalities are, I think that maybe get, pick up an autograph, you know, you never know. Uh, uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, I, I would like it because it would be an exciting thing for me because, you know, I, I would like to inspire people to stay in better health and, uh, you know, and, and uh, I work out really hard and I'm trying to do my best and uh, I don't play as like I used to. Uh, I, I did a, fan, a red fantasy camp this, this, this past winter and we had to play the pros. I mean, the, all the, all the, uh, the people that come down there and I was playing third base and they hit a ball to my left and I, I backhanded and threw a line drive to first base and one of the campers hollered in the stands, you still got it, Joel. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't still got it. I was just lucky. <laughs> Joel, I have to thank you so much for your time today, as well as giving me and Howie some great stories for our You Never Forget Your First, the collection of New York Mets book, uh, first book. And um, hopefully things change and, and you'll be there and uh, I'll see you at Mets Old Timers Day. We, we would love to see you there. Well, that would be great, and uh, I would like again take this opportunity to tell all the the New York baseball fans uh, it was what an honor it was to play in New York and and to perform for you and uh, and and I really appreciate uh, the New York franchise because if you're an athlete and you get a chance to play in New York, then you've really accomplished something. I think it's the only place you can play. So thank you, Mark, for having me, and uh, thank you, New York, for having me also. Our pleasure. Joel Youngblood, former New York Met also.